Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, by senior TechCrunch reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Hi, Marianne. How was your week? How are you holding up? Hi, Alex. I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm a cadaver on two pegs. I'm, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm so tired. Look, I know talking about the weather to kick off the podcast is cliche at this point, but it's too hot. I'm tired and I'm tired of being sweaty. Marianne, I just want like some rain, you know? Oh like, yeah, rain. Yeah, it's a concept. It's a concept that one of our friends also doesn't know because of where she lives. And that's why we're so happy that we have Kirsten Korsak back on the podcast. Kirsten, hey, how are you? I am great. Fresh from vacation. So I'm the opposite of you, feeling very refreshed, very perky and ready to pod. But I will note that we do have rain now because in the Southwest, we're in the middle of monsoon season. So we're just loving it here in the heat slash rain situation. Well, we have flash flood warnings. So woohoo, good times. It doesn't rain and then it just dumps for an hour and then it just stops. Anyways, climate change turns out it's a whole thing. And that's actually a, a, a foretaste of a podcast episode that will come out in a couple of weeks here on Equity. So hang tight for that. In the meantime, today on the pod, deals of the week are AngelList and Nova, Waymo and RoboTaxis, and then what's going on with interest rates. Then we're going to talk about the earnings season that we have seen thus far, talking about AI, revenue, and the ad market. And then backing diverse fund managers using different means to try to shake up what is the venture capital game as we know it. Marianne, though, we're doing a deal this week that is actually a deal. It's an acquisition. It's an actual trade of equity for presumably money. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. So AngelList has picked up a startup called Nova. And this is an interesting deal for a number of reasons. For one, AngelList, as you all likely know, has historically been focused on the venture capital industry, right? It started out as, as trying to connect founders with angel investors or high quality angel investors. It has broadened its scope over time with numerous products, but still very much focused on the venture community and angel investor community. Now it's entering the private equity space. So that's really interesting. And I think it just speaks to the organization just really trying to move up market. Okay. So I have a lot of questions about this. First of all, what can you tell us about Nova? How big of a company was it? How big is this deal? Yeah. So we don't know the financial terms, unfortunately. Nova was not a huge company, but it appeared to be pretty fast growing. 26-year-old Pradyuman Vig started it a few years ago after selling another startup called Asuna. And basically, it was designed to help replace subscription paperwork with uh, digital workflows to make it easier to, to close deals and work up contracts. I mean, really, to their credit, they signed up a lot of very big names, including Van Eck, Pantera, Broad Street Global. Van Eck has about $78 billion in assets under management. So Nova currently has over 10,000 investors who've invested billions of dollars throughout its system over the last year. And I was told that revenue tripled in 2022, was on target to grow by 2x this year. Okay. So Kirsten, I'm very curious. We have a, a company that I think of angels. And then when I think about private equity, I think about the biggest possible capital pools. So this is going up, 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 up market. What's your take? I'm so torn between is this this very smart strategic move that is adding to the lifestyle of products? Or is it let's throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Which one is it? I'm not sure. The only difference between those two is just the success, right? Like it's, if it exactly. goes well, it's genius. If it goes poorly, it's spaghetti against the wall. So Marianne, help us understand here. You are our local fintech genius. So smart or dumb? 
genius might be a stretch, but you know, it's really tough to say. I do think it's interesting that Angelus raised its own venture capital in 2022, $100 million Series B at a $4 billion valuation. This was March of 2022. So it feels like, I wonder how much of that is influencing this decision. Is there pressure to grow in different ways? Tiger Global co-led that round. So that's kind of interesting. Although Angelus claims they've been growing quite a lot, they sent me a bunch of numbers, including the fact that, and this was a pretty big deal, I think, assets supported for investors on Angelus increased by 50% to $15 billion year over year in 2022. That's quite a lot. Alex, I have a question for you. Do you think that this is reflective of just the general economic environment and that people are thinking more about private equity now? Or is this just a very niche? We're not like, are we going to see more of this? Mm. So I think the fact that Tiger led that Series B is the most important data point of what Mm -hmm. Marianne said, because the, the beginning of 2022 wasn't the end of 2022 in terms of where the venture market was. The fact that Tiger was leading a $100 million Series B indicates that this round was probably started late 2021 when things were pretty crazy. So I presume the valuation's wrong, right? So if you're angelist, you have a bunch of money, you're growing, but you need to have a higher revenue base to defend that valuation in the future. What do you do? Well, you go out and you buy, as Marianne pointed out, a big chunk of revenue and quote, quote, go up market. Everyone loves that because it's a growth story. Every SaaS company does this. They sell to Billy and Bob, and then they sell to Boeing and another company starts with a B because I didn't have another example to make my alliteration work there. Anyways, I think this sounds like a revenue buy, which I don't dislike. I I just wonder if angel list is going to work up into the private equities, you know, higher echelon where there's $15 billion is not that much money to have kind of under management, if you will, if you'll allow the analogy. Yeah, I mean, the CEO of Angelus told me that as startups mature, the scope of capital providers they can tap into expands into private equity. And so they feel like, you know, this way Angelus can serve startups throughout their journey. But I agree with you, Alex. I feel like, you know, there there may have been some pressure to keep growing revenue, hence this deal. The startup seems to be, you know, fast growing and obviously private equity, they manage a lot of assets. A lot of assets. Speaking about a lot of money, though, I hear, Kirsten, that if you put all your bets onto one basket, it's a poor choice. And yet we know Waymo is taking all of its capital and putting it towards one part of the autonomous vehicle game. What's going on? It's putting all of its AV eggs into one basket. This is really interesting. The company has decided to, I'm not going to say shutter its self-driving trucks program because there is minor activity still going to be happening But essentially what they're doing is shifting all their capital resources and talent, including from departments focused on self-driving trucks and putting it all into ride hailing. And this is interesting for a number of reasons. One, it wasn't that long ago, two years ago, maybe right in the middle of COVID when many AV developers suddenly pivoted to logistics and delivery because that was the business model. The issue with autonomous vehicle technology is the technical part. And then the business model, how are we going to make money off of this? And while ride hailing or robo taxis was the dream, many pivoted to delivery logistics because it seemed like a clearer, faster way to make money. And now Waymo is sort of shifting back its focus to ride hailing. And I think in part because it's it has accelerated its ride hailing program, um, expanded quite a bit, doubled in size in the Phoenix area is expanding in San Francisco, but still cannot charge there. 
because they're waiting for a final permit. But this is big news and really kind of leaves only one player or a couple of players, one publicly traded player in the AV trucking space. And that's Aurora. Okay. I want to talk about Aurora in a second, but you mentioned there's two kind of things that you have to do to get autonomous vehicles correct. The technical side and then the financial side. Certainly on the trucking side of things, it's easier to kind of draw a line between work and revenue because we know trucking is a massive business. Humans are a major cost center. So sure, that makes sense. But isn't also the technical challenge of doing autonomous freight a little bit easier than autonomous robo-taxis inside of cities where there's more chaos? Sure. I mean, there are other problems, higher speeds, for instance, incredibly heavy vehicles, trucks, class eight trucks traveling at fast speeds and the ability to stop. Those all matter. But yes, highways are considered a easier geofence or environment. And there is a couple of little challenges, which is, do you want the truck to go hub to hub, which some companies are doing? Or do you want them to be able to get off the exit and weave their way through maybe a couple of city streets to get to their destination? And so there is that little technical problem. But yes, widely considered robotaxis to be a more difficult problem because the urban streets, pedestrians, bikes, all the things. Kirsten, to be clear, you're referring to like 18 wheelers when we talk about self-driving trucks? Yeah, in your state. Oh, my Gosh, that's terrifying. Like, I'm already scared of like little cars driving around that are autonomous. But my God, if I'm on the freeway and I see an 18 wheeler with no driver next to me, I would I would freak out. Like that just scares the crap out of me. So my advice is to stay off the highways in Texas, (laughs) particularly around the Dallas area. (sighs) We're not yet. We're not yet. The industry is not yet at driverless, meaning there's still one or two human safety operators with the specific truck driver license behind the wheel, but they're getting close. And the major players, it used to be a pretty crowded field. Two simple publicly traded company, Aurora, publicly traded via a SPAC merger, and then a smaller startup, but still hanging in there, still raising money, Kodiak Robotics. Those are the three major players. We've seen a lot of consolidation and exits already happening. And Two Simple has been having its own problems, lots of internal drama, all sorts of issues, and is shifting more to China now. So that kind of leaves Aurora now that Waymo's exiting is very interesting in the industry to me. And then I know we need to move on to talk about my favorite thing in the world, which is interest rates. But Aurora also recently raised a bunch of money and there might be an interesting investor in that mix. So recapitalized and with some good friends. Yeah. So they raised $820 million in a a public, and this is the important part, concurrent private offering. And it wasn't really publicly advertised who that private offering was from, but it appears that it was indeed with Uber. And for those who follow Aurora, they know that a couple of years ago, Aurora merged with Uber ATG. It was kind of an acquisition. It was a very complicated deal. And so Uber had maintained a stake in the company. So this seems to be a an additional investment into the company, which is interesting to see that Uber still has its hand in autonomous trucking. Well, Uber still has a freight revenue item in its earnings, if I recall its Q1 results. So certainly still has a bet or two on that particular crap stable. One thing I'm curious about, though, is what 
will turn out to be a zero interest rate phenomena in the technology space? Like, will autonomous vehicles and all the money that went into that end up being kind of a boomlet that we could only see when money was so cheap? I don't know. But one thing that is happening is perhaps the end of the kind of rapid ascent of interest rates. So this week, we saw the American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, raise a domestic rate by 25 basis points or 0.25%. And, you know, Kirsten, the good news here is that there is possible indication that we're done with this rate-raising cycle if data kind of shakes out the way people are hoping, stocks like it, and there seems to be a general bit of ebullience out there. So I'm curious how much attention you guys pay to the Fed this week, or if it's just me and I should riff longer or I should make, make space for other commentary. Marianne, you're in FinTech. Did you watch this? I've been paying attention, of course. I think it's it's really interesting how much we've seen certain stocks climb this year so far. We've got like Google and Microsoft up. What is it? Google's like 40% this year. They're both up more than 40% year to date. Yeah, it's quite impressive. It is. It is. So I feel like we may have touched on this last week, but like the fear of this so-called recession just, you know, was maybe just that a fear. I feel like things are finally like we're all starting to kind of exhale. Like, okay, maybe, maybe really the worst is over. Maybe things are starting to look up because if things are starting to improve in the public markets, then one would expect they're going to start to improve in the private markets as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we've even seen that in publicly traded companies, especially software companies, which provide the most direct comps to startups. So if rates do slow in their ascent or stop altogether, I can't read it as anything but bullish for tech companies. The thing that I'm unsure of is do rates need to go down for things to get spicy again, or is merely a a halt in the the rise of rates enough to kind of like change the chapter for tech companies today. I just miss deals like the Aurora ATG deal when there was so much money bouncing around and Cruise was raising like a billion dollars and they're just, money was more in motion, you know? And today it feels much more constricted and, and therefore boring. So I'm just kind of waiting for the good times to come back so I can, I don't know, just have more fun. I think the word you were looking for was that money was more available, right? And it has been a little bit locked up. You know, the interesting thing to me about this is I have looked at tech stocks, of course, and been following that. And, and you're right, there is certainly rosier, a rosier outlook. But I kind of wonder if that is across all sectors. I think of things like prop tech. I think of areas like construction, areas where interest rates have a massive effect and put downward pressure and then can ripple through other industries and sectors. Yeah. Right. So Google stops might be doing great, but how is it affecting other startups and actually just large corporations in terms of like getting loans and things like that? And how is that affecting the rest of the economy? Well, we can kind of look at that, frankly, through the lens of the value of Opendoor. And if you recall, Opendoor was a company, uh, Marianne, it was an eye buyer, right? Yes, yes, that's right. Trying to buy up homes and then like buy them up, fix them up and resell them. Yeah, Flipping. Yeah. Essentially. And that's cheaper to do when borrowing capital to purchase the homes, invest in them and so forth and resell them doesn't cost much. The value of Open Door fell from, you know, upwards of $35 a share all the way down to like about a, a buck fifty a share. It's Ooh, since ouch. Uh, yes, but it has since then reflated all the way to about four fifty. It's up year to date three hundred percent. So I think Kirsten's point about interest rates rippling through different sectors of the economy, impacting companies, even tech companies, is super real. But if open doors 
partial recoveries, anything to, to indicate where we're going. Maybe this is going to be good for not just software companies, which is what I stare at, but really a broader basket of tech more generally. I don't know if it'll save prop tech, but you know. What can save prop tech though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to, that's probably going to take a while until like, until mortgage rates drop considerably. Yeah. I saw this horrible stat. It was like, if you bought a house that was like $800,000 when rates were zero, you paid X per month. And now that same monthly payment at a higher rate will buy you like one third the amount of house. Right. It's insane. I mean, I, I knew it was extreme. I didn't realize it was that painful. Like I with, with house prices where they are, how is anyone buying anything? Just seems right. prohibitively expensive, which is you know not good for open door. Now, after the break, we do have quite a lot to talk about. We have Ford and GM earnings. We have what's going on with AI and big tech. But first, a short break. So tis the season of earnings. I've been thinking about that one for a while. It's a little bit, you know, Christmassy, but forgive me. Uh, but it is earnings <laughs> season and there is quite a bit of activity. Alex, what's caught your eye? Well, I mean, oh my gosh. It's my favorite time of the year. Comes four times a year. Earnings season lasts most of the quarter. Pretty much it's always earnings season if you look hard enough. So I'm having a blast. I have been looking mostly thus far at two things. One is AI and how it's impacting big tech spend and revenue growth. And then also the advertising market as it relates to a lot of other tech companies as well. But Kirsten, because you are on the show, we can also expand our remit a little bit and talk about some other companies. And one earnings report that I was very impressed by and very curious about was GM. How'd they do? Yeah, GM, it was really interesting. There was some important news tucked in there, which I will talk about. But the big headline is they're really putting profits at the center of their mission. They've decided to increase cost cutting by another $1 billion, meaning $3 billion total. And that is going to help boost profits. They still have other issues going on to do with production, but this is their mission. And I think in part it's because they're really trying to drive those profit margins and get up to something closer to what Tesla has. But the other news that was tucked inside there that I think that you're going to love is that the Chevy Bolt EV, which was supposed to die at the end of this year, is actually not dying Mm -hmm. at all. It's back. I was surprised at that. Yeah. And this was their highest volume selling vehicle. It wasn't outpacing, let's say, Tesla Model 3 or anything like that, but it was their largest volume sales vehicle. And it was also their most affordable. This is going to be a next gen version, meaning it's going to have all of the newer battery tech. It's called the Ultium battery design and underlying architecture and software, but it is coming back. And that should bode well for consumers looking for a more affordable EV, which Right now, the average price of a new EV is somewhere around $55,000. This is considerably lower than that. I'm surprised at how quickly this came out. I mean, three months ago, hey, no more, no more Bolt. And now a next gen. I mean, do you think they were planning to do this all along or was it just this sudden decision? It would be a very odd strategic decision to <laughs> make this bat- backpedal publicly. I-, I think that either they got a lot of feedback from consumers, from the public, that there is a, you know, a sector that is open for them or some other factor that could have been on simply like the engineering design side, like, hey, we can do this. 
one thing that I'm very interested in is where it's going to be built. Because right now, the Chevy Bolt is built in the Orient Assembly facility in Michigan. And they said at the time that this was going to be repurposed for electric truck production. Trucks generally or their highest margin vehicles are generally made in the United States because they can maintain profit margins while still paying union jobs, while their cheapest vehicles are typically made in other markets, usually Mexico. So what does this mean? Is Chevy Bolt going to stay in Orion and electric truck production going somewhere else? Or will they shift this vehicle down to Mexico? And that's a total wild speculation, but I'm very curious to see what happens on that front. Yeah. And I just pulled up some sales numbers for the Bolt, or as it's called in other markets, the Opel Empera E, turns out. Mm-hmm. And if you look mm-hmm. at sales in the US, started off about 24,000 units back in 2017 and fell all the way to about 16.4 in 2019, and then re-picked up steam. And then last year, they sold 38,000 of them in the US, which tracks because there are several in my neighborhood here in Providence. So I literally see these walking down the street with the dogs or the baby. And Canadian sales went from 2017 to over 6,022. So certainly it it looks like momentum was there. So I get why they're going to keep doing it. But the choice to Mm -hmm. publicly kill off what was seemingly a success and also kind of a a flag in the ground for consumers will buy these. Gosh, that's got to be a weird brandy moment for them. Like JK, trust us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. well, the the one little interesting note there is that where you saw that dip and then it reboot, that was a model refresh. And so that helped, of course, boost sales and some improvements in the vehicle. But also they managed to get those higher sales in spite of a production stoppage and a recall. So around their a, bat, a flaw in the battery, which they discovered and they have since taken care of. So the hope from GM's perspective is, of course, that all the work they put into this new battery design improves the range, avoids future recalls, and then they can really take those sales volumes and push them, you know, by a much larger factor. Yeah, well, I mean, here's hoping because whenever I see an electric car, I'm like, oh, God, progress. Look at that. And then I turn around and I see like four F250s that are like at the size of my house. And I'm like, <laughs> anti-progress, you know, fits and starts. For where you are, 50, where I am. Well, you do happen to live in like the truck capital of the world. Maybe. <laughs> um, right. Elsewhere in the world of earnings, uh, we've had Microsoft, we have had Alphabet, we have had Meta, we have had Snap, quite a lot going on. I want to hit on a couple of quick points here. The first thing is that to succeed in AI at the cloud infrastructure level requires a lot of money up front. We're seeing both Alphabet, which owns Google and Microsoft, spend quite a lot of money to build out data centers and to kind of get the, the right chips and servers in place to power all this stuff. So, you know, NVIDIA shareholders, shout out, you're doing great. But it does seem that the real revenue growth that investors are kind of hoping these products are going to bring out, that's incremental to what we've seen in the past from these companies, is going to be, you know, two to four quarters out. And so I was just kind of curious if you guys are surprised by how long that ramp is going to take, because on one hand, it's longer than people want. On the other hand, you know, generative AI is kind of brand new. So I, I don't know whether if I should be more impatient or less impatient. I think we need to be less impatient. This is not technology we want to rush. There's <laughs> could be a lot of a lot of harm done in in my humble opinion. If so. Okay, Kirsten, what's your take? I 100% agree. This is one of those things where I cannot do a counterpoint. I think that patience is a virtue in this case and as someone who has watched the hype cycle occur with autonomous vehicles and now the carnage that has resulted in that, I think that the industry would be wise to, you know, 
take a slower pace. All right. To play devil's advocate as we're doing the show okay. this week, autonomous cars could kill my dog, could kill me. <laughs> Pretty big deal. Uh, baking generative AI into Outlook seems lower stakes. So why do we have to have a kind of like, you know, AV level of caution for something that is text generation on a blinking screen? Well, <laughs> first of all, AVs have been in some level of development for more than a decade now. And we're just now seeing that and a lot of the hype and flurry of activity really started 2016 to about, you know, 2020. And then things kind of bop, dropped out. And you're right, the stakes are high, but I would argue that there's still very high stakes, even a low level applications, because we haven't totally foreseen how this will be applied in other things. So while you might look at it in a very narrow view, like, oh, when it's applied in this very narrow view, it's fine in Outlook, for example. But say, let's apply it to something much higher stakes, then the outcome could be much different. Okay. Are you convinced? No. You don't seem convinced at I'm all. Not convi- I'm not convinced at all. I think what I did was I made a poor argument, which you then correctly rebutted, and I need to kind of go back and tinker with my initial point. Here's my view. Generative AI has a lot of societal level questions attached to it. Like, what's the value of people learning how to write if down the road most folks are going to lean on this sort of thing? The other part of that is people hate writing mostly, so they're going to use it. All right, fair enough. There's big questions there and we should work on it. But I mean, like, I don't know, building generative AI stuff into enterprise software to me, I mean, it's already happening, guys. Like, you know, Marfield, our analytics software we use here at TC, like it has that generative AI headline idea thing that just does for you based on your story, which we don't use, but it's there. I see it. So this stuff's already kind of percolating in. It's just, I don't know why we have to be slow on this stuff. It doesn't seem, I, I just, I don't see as much danger in it. But why do we have to be so fast? too. I mean, why like racing and racing is like, I I don't know. I think for the the sake, oh, I got to be first, got to be first. But then what if what you put out there sucks and it's just not good? I mean, then what's the point? Like, don't you want to take your time and do something right, then rush and like put out crap? (laughs) I mean, look, as someone who's been told their entire life to slow down, I still don't agree with that advice. And, and the flip side is, Marianne, the planet is dying. We only have like, what, 20 years left before we're all cooked. So we might as well make some money now. <laughs> that shareholder return's not going to work when the planet's a thousand degrees and everyone's underwater. So uplifting we are today. <laughs> that was the most convincing <laughs> argument. You have me sold. I'm completely changing my entire position, Alex. <laughs> all right. Well, elsewhere in earnings season, if you're not into AI or you think that we should absolutely slow down the, the rollout of Gen AI products, the ad market. Market, which has existed for even longer than the autonomous vehicle market, is recovering. So if you take a look at stuff from Meta and Snap and especially Google, we are seeing a recovery in, I would say, ad spend, some bumps in the road. But I put this under the same kind of umbrella, Kirsten, of the overall GDP and labor market stuff that we've seen, which is things are a little bit better than perhaps the, the more pessimistic among us expected. And so I think mm-hmm. the results we're seeing are indicative of you know, a recovery of sorts. And that is encouraging. Yeah, that is encouraging. And advertising is one of those, I hate to use this overused cliche, but sort of the canary in the coal mine usually for recessionary fears, because it's one of the first things where people cut back. And when it starts to return, it is a a very easy thing to return back to. And it is an early indicator of 
I wouldn't say a recovery, but maybe a lessening of fears. Definitely. There's a quote from Snap that I'm trying to pull up from a story that I wrote the other year. And they essentially said, yeah, look, ad spend, can you, you can turn it on, turn it off pretty quickly if you know what you're doing. So it can be highly variable, not just quarter to quarter, but even kind of month to month inside of a particular three-month period. But I'm encouraged. I think that if we are seeing greater spend on ads, it implies economic confidence, which implies you know a more stable labor market. People are more willing to buy tech stuff, probably. So you know, this earnings season is not amazing, but it does seem to be a different tone and tenor than what we saw in Q1. And even like even the GM stuff, Kirsten, like their profitability expectations for the year were greater than I expected, at least. Like it, it seems to be pretty medium okay everywhere, which is great compared to what people thought we were going to have by this time in 2023. Right. Less fire and brimstone and a little little glimmers of hope on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. I mean, I own index funds, so whatever, but I think most of my index funds are just made up of the companies we're talking about. All right, moving on to our final theme of the day, fund of funds and diverse managers. Marianne, can you just tell the people what a fund of fund is? I can try, Alex. I I keep going over this in my head to try to simplify it, but basically, you know, you have funds that back VC firms as LPs, and then some of these VC firms that are actually backing other funds, like smaller ones, Mm -hmm. as a way to get into deals more indirectly. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me let me pick that up and I'm going to just shape it ever so slightly. But I, I, I love where you're going with that. A fund of funds is a capital vehicle that investors put money into. These could be family offices, pension funds, whatever. And then it takes that capital and doesn't deploy it directly itself, but instead puts it into other funds that do. So let's say you're, you know, you're the Marianne Azevedo family generational trust and you have $100 billion under management. You might not want to go out there and pick all the VC funds that you want to, but you might put capital into a fund of funds or F of F that has a venture capital focus, and then they will put that money to work for you inside those funds. So it's kind of like the middle management layer of investing. That was far better, far, far better than I described it. So thank you, Alex. So Alex, why should we care about fund of funds? Oh, I care because I have capital jealousy. Because no one's inviting me to invest in their funds of funds. They're like, take your $25 and go home, sir. Get out of here. No, we All right. We maybe, maybe a better maybe a better question is, you know, why should our massive audience care about this? And what does this mean in the in this startup world? And what does this mean for startups? Yes. And we're we are gently circling a story written by Dominic Midori Davis, which we'll link to in the show notes. And the the argument that she makes is that fund of funds, because they put capital into a number of venture capital funds, could be a neat and perhaps even uniquely suited way to invest in more diverse fund managers and more diverse investors more generally. So, you know, if you if you are gonna put go out there and find one fund to put money into, you're probably thinking, you know, I want to put in Union Square and Sequoia or whatever. Um, but a fund of funds could probably have more relationships and therefore move capital and deploy it more equitably into more funds. And so the, the hope is that given that VC remains pretty much people who look like me, but better dressed, maybe FOFs can diversify the ranks of investors and prevent some of the smaller funds that we saw kind of bubble up in the 2020-2021 cycle survive. So I think it's cool. The question is, is there enough institutional demand for this sort of fund of fund investing strategy. And I don't think we know yet, but it could marry and prevent the collapse of smaller funds and more diverse fund managers who are on fund one, fund two. I mean, I really, really would would hope so. I think the numbers, unfortunately, have still been very bleak when it comes to 
the funding of diverse founders. And I know Dominic also did another story recently looking at uh, all women founding teams having only just raised $1.4 billion in the first half of this year. So one would hope, it's unfortunate that it, it still feels like we have such a long way to go and more diverse fund managers and founders in general getting capital. Yeah. The same data set from Don points out that, you know, all female teams raised $1.4 billion in H1 of this year, which actually was down in Q2 compared to Q1, but that was the lowest amount since the first half of 2017. Mm, I mean, yeah. it's there's so many times I pull up a new funding story on TechCrunch.com and it's two dudes. Sometimes it's one dude and a woman. Very infrequently is it is it two women. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I mean, I have talked to female founders who say that part of the reason they do have a male co-founder is, is just for that, that they recognize that it's easier to raise money when you've got a male co-founder. And it's it's really sad, but it's unfortunately just reality. So one question for you, Alex and Marianne, actually, what I hear a lot of words like hope, and hopefully this could be used for this, but is there anything structurally that would help guarantee that it would promote more diverse investing? Or is it really just up to the powers that be? And what prevents the inverse from happening, meaning going out of their way to not invest in diverse startups? Well, I don't know if you've heard of a state called Florida, but it's this bit of the U.S. that juts off into the ocean and it's very, very hot there. And I think it's gotten to some people's heads uh, because we've seen some interesting stuff on the ESG front out of Florida. ESG stands for Environment, Social and um, Governance. And so if you want to think about finding a way to have more capital flow into more diverse fund managers, you could put that under the E or G in an ESG investing strategy. But we have seen a pretty robust political pushback in the US over that sort of investing, usually put forward by a bunch of white dudes. So I would say there was a moment like 18 months ago, 24 months ago, when it felt like we were moving in that direction for a, a kind of a societal or institutional level. And now, I, to the contrary, I, I'm not shocked by the numbers we're seeing. In fact, it kind of seems to meet the, the moment that we're seeing politically in the US, which is a disappointment. I will never not have hope because it's, it's free to do so, but I don't see a lot of political tailwinds, Marianne, that are going to push stuff in that direction. No, sadly, I, I agree. It feels like in some ways we've regressed in that regard. It's it's depressing how you can kind of make a little bit of progress towards a more equitable society and then you get kind of dragged back by the collar. Yeah. And I think part of it too is, I mean, just in general, we obviously we've seen this general slowdown. So when you have a, an overall big general slowdown, I think the, the people that are most impacted are those that were already not receiving a lot of capital to begin with. So that's just sort of the natural evolution of things. It's just if there's less money being deployed, then, of course, the people who are already not getting enough are going to get less. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, my friends, we have to go away. Before we go quickly, uh, Marianne and Kirsten, where can people find you on social media? At Bay Area Writer on, I was about to say Twitter, but X, which sounds so weird to say. Is that your only social home? The only one I'm going to talk about at the moment. Yes. yes. Marianne is a devotee of all things Musk. It's the only place she will put her thoughts out on the internet. <laughs> uh, Kirsten, where, where can people find you? Well, I'm also on the 
social media website formerly called Twitter and not spending as much time on there, but I do still go there and post stories and commentary, but I'm also a blue sky at Kirsten Korosek, same as it is on that other one. And I'm going to make a fan account for Marianne on blue sky and put it under the handle, not actually in the Bay area writer. So you can follow that <laughs> if you'd like. You can also follow equity on both Twitter and threads. We are under the handle equity pod and we skeet on blue sky under the handle equity. And if you are coming to disrupt and do not have a ticket yet, don't forget you can use the code equity, all one word to save a couple of dollars there. And I think that's it guys. We're back on Monday, but anything else before we go? No, have a great weekend. Yes. Have a great weekend. Avoid the storms and we'll talk to you guys Monday morning. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.